Turn, if you would, to the sixth chapter of the book of Proverbs. We're going to try to do something today that is impossible. Hmm? Um, we're actually going to try to do a chapter and a half of Proverbs. I know, it's impossible. The last half of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 deal with the subject of the adulterous woman. If you remember, we met her two weeks ago in chapter 5, where we dealt with the reality that not only are, those, are there those out there who are following the path of folly, the people following the path of folly are actively working to subvert those on the path of wisdom and to draw them away and to get them to join the folly. And as we said at the time, the book of Proverbs is written instructions of a father to his son. So the son is being warned about the adulterous woman. You could have just as easily and maybe more appropriately written instructions to a daughter about men leading them astray. It works either way. So we're going to try to finish off this discussion of the adulterous woman. But before we do that, we have to at least read the verses that we didn't make it through for last week's lesson. So we'll pick up in verse 12. If you remember last week, we talked about co-signing loans, and we talked about the sluggard, laziness, and how it prevents us from doing those things that we ought to do. So picking up in verse 12. A scoundrel and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks with his eye, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart. He always stirs up dissension, therefore disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. There are six things... The Lord hates seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. We like to talk about the things that God loves. God is love. We talk about God being love, what that means, and we begin to think that God will tolerate everything. Because of his love, God doesn't really care when we do bad things. But we are told there are certain things that God hates, and in fact, we are given a list. This is a... Um, construct, a structure that we will see throughout the book of Proverbs, primarily when we get over to chapter 30, there are six things, no, seven things that the Lord hates. And over in chapter 30, there'll be, you know, five things that I don't understand. No, six things and four things that, I, and no, <laughs> it's an odd way of talking. But what it's doing is he's trying to demonstrate here is a list here is a list of things that the Lord hates. So I think it would behoove us to understand the things that are on the list. Somebody tell me, what is a haughty eye? Huh? 
pride. What does a prideful eye look like? Let's get the cameras out and we'll look at Pardon? Look in the He told me to look in the mirror. Oh. <laughs> Haughtiness is a pride, a pride that says, I don't need instruction. We're looking at the book of Proverbs. We're looking at wisdom. The haughty eye says, I don't need that. It is the child that is being corrected and looks at you with this view of, who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you? Rolling your eyes back. You've seen that before? Never. Unfortunately, it isn't restricted to children. There are adults who you tell them, that's a stupid thing to do. And they look at you like, are you an idiot? Everyone in the world is doing this. And you're telling me, go away. That haughty, prideful attitude that says, I don't need wisdom and instruction. And I certainly don't need it from you. And conversely, I don't need it from your God. It is the idea that I am the center of my world. I am the center of my world and I am the final arbiter of what is right and wrong. A lying tongue, that's easy enough, doesn't speak the truth. God hates it when we don't say that which is true. Think about that for a moment. Heads, hands that shed innocent blood. Okay, how many of you have shed innocent blood? No, I don't, I don't want to show a hand. Probably most of you haven't. Now, we talk in the Sermon on the Mount about the fact that if you hate your brother, you have murdered him in your heart. You have begun to walk down that path towards shedding innocent blood. But the reality is our hands are given to us to do the work of God. That hand right there is supposed to do the things of God. And what we see in each of these things is taking that which God has given us, that hand, that tongue, these eyes, and subverting their use for something other than what God intended it for. So when I take my eyes and I look at you with disdain, when I take my tongue and I speak untruth to you, when I use my hands for something contrary to what God created us to do, God says, I hate it. A heart that devises wicked schemes. This one's interesting. Remember, in the Bible, the heart is the center of who we are. It isn't the organ in your body that pumps blood. It is your mind, your will, and your emotions. What this means is more than, well, I just had an opportunity to do evil and I just did it. You know, I'm walking along and I just do something that I shouldn't have done. We talk about that in, say, the book of Galatians, where we talk about people who fall into sin. It just, you know, the temptation pops up and they give in. This isn't that. 
This is the guy that is scheming, is contemplating, is plotting how to do evil. Their mind, their will, their emotions are connected to doing this particular evil. This is the individual whose heart is hardened and corrupted. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. Once again, this is not the person who just happens to stumble upon evil. This is the person that goes looking for it. And in actual fact, we're going to see this person in chapter 7 when the author says, I look out my window and there is the foolish young man wandering toward the house of the adulterous woman. They go looking for evil. That wouldn't describe any of us, would it? We don't go out of our way looking. Well, I don't know. A false witness that pours out lies. Why is this different than a lying tongue, which is the second one on the list? Well, a witness is called to give account of something. You are called to a courtroom. You are called to a meeting of people. And you are told to give proper witness. If you will, you are under oath. You are obliged in this particular situation to speak the truth. Probably because someone else's life, money, reputation, etc. are on the line. And this individual in that situation continues to pour out lies. Gossip. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> Which certainly is bearing false witness about an individual. A man who stirs up dissension among brothers. How many of you have ever, I actually have, known someone who just liked to stir the pot? You know? Are you going to let that person say that about you? Did you hear what Mike said about you? And, you know, it's not, it's not overt, go out and tell somebody to beat up somebody. It's just kind of giving hints, you know. Have you ever known anybody like that? I actually have. I've seen it in the workplace where there's the individual who just kind of hints. Oh, you should hear what that guy said about you. Oh, you should hear what that guy said about you. The idea of the brother implies people that are living in close proximity that have some relationship with each other. And this individual who God hates is working at causing a break between these two people. What's the fight? Yeah. They just stir up the pot, they stand back, and watch it explode. Now, I hate to admit this, but I have read books and articles about this occurring within churches. You know? I've heard it where the pastor was one of the people stirring up the trouble. Did you hear? Once again, what we have here are a list of things that God hates. Now, once again, 
with the book of Proverbs in general? The easy answer is to sit there and go, you know, that is so true, and I know somebody that that applies to. I know somebody that that applies to. I should go beat them over the head with that. What we really need to do is we really need to examine our own lives. Okay? You haven't shed innocent blood recently. But are your hands doing the work that God would have you to do? Okay, you don't lie that often. Well, maybe you do. But by not sharing the gospel, are you in essence lying about what God means to you by your life? Okay, your high eyes don't look that haughty. That's why you wear the sunglasses. No. But do you have that prideful attitude that says, I'm a mature adult and no one has the right to tell me what to do? Certainly not God himself. Nobody would ever, ever, ever say, God doesn't have the right to tell me what to do. Verbally. But we live our lives that way. We live our lives as if we are autonomous human beings, and who are you to tell us what to do? It's just interesting. It's an interesting list to me that causes certain reflection on my part. From here, we move to the adulterous woman, and now we're going to fly. We met her two lessons ago in chapter 5, so we will pick up the story again. Both the last half of chapter 6 and chapter 7 begin the same way. A warning to the son, pay attention to what I'm about to say. Pay attention to the truth that I'm about to give you. My son, keep, my, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teachings. Bind them upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. That's quite a promise. That's quite a promise given to those who follow the way of wisdom. For these commands are a lamp, this teaching is a light, and the corrections of discipline are the way to life. We're going to see in chapter 7 this picture again of as darkness approaches, I saw the young man. Do you see the picture? As darkness approaches. Throughout the scripture, darkness is an illustration of the human heart apart from the knowledge and wisdom of God. We see this in bold letters in the book of John where Jesus heals the blind man and then spends chapter after chapter dealing with that, not as a discussion of healing, but as a discussion of spiritual blindness that cannot see the truth. John chapter 1 begins with a discussion of the darkness. The world was in darkness and they did not know Jesus because, why? They loved the darkness. So darkness is a picture. 
Darkness is a picture of the heart apart from God. God's instructions are a light and a lamp. What does a light and a lamp do for you? It points out the path that you're supposed to take. I think I've mentioned in here before, you know, we as modern 21st century Americans really sometimes lose sight of what dark really feels like. I mean, you walk outside of your house and there's lights everywhere. If you live in a city, even if you live kind of in the country, there's lights on the house, there's lights on the house over there on the hill, there's lights around. And we lose sight of what real darkness is. The idea that is found in all those old fairy tales where you're walking through the dark forest and it's night and we don't realize how dark dark is where you literally can't see anything in front of you and then all of a sudden the lamp comes on the flashlight comes on and all of a sudden you see the trail before you and you go oh that's the way I'm supposed to go particularly if there's horrible danger on either side. The warnings to the young man, the warnings to the young woman, are that there are those out there who want to lead them off of the path, who want to lead them off the trail. And the only thing, the only thing that will allow them to continue on the path of wisdom is that light which are the commands and instructions of God. That's what shows you where you're supposed to go. The corrections of discipline are the way to life. We had a discussion several, several weeks ago about rebukes. The basic idea is I'm going this way and someone whacks me up the side of the head and says, no, that's the wrong way. You're supposed to be going this way. At that instant... I have an option. I can accept what has been told to me and say, oh, you're right. I can turn around and go the correct way. Or I can be that individual with the haughty eyes and say, who are you to tell me what to do? And that is understanding the corrections of discipline. Do I respond correctly and the book of Proverbs would lead you to believe that's the only way to continue down the path of wisdom. Let's face it, none of us, none of us are smart enough, wise enough to do it on our own. We all need the help of someone else. We all need someone to say, you're going the wrong way. But we all have prideful hearts. We all have prideful hearts that say, no, I'm going to do it my way. <sighs> For these commands are a lamp, this teaching is a light, and the corrections of discipline are the way to life, keeping you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. 
Notice once again what we talked about in chapter 5. The adulterous woman is attractive. Sin is appealing to us for a season. It says, don't be captivated. She has a smooth tongue. Her words are very enticing. Her words are there to lead you in a certain direction. We know what those kinds of words are. Those words aren't, come with me and we'll ruin our lives together. No, that's not what they're going to say. What do they say? Come with me and we will share happiness, joy. Be a man. Come with me. And we are led astray. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty. That's an interesting series of words itself. Do not lust in your heart. You don't have to deny the beauty. But there is a difference between lusting after her beauty, which means I have to possess it, and simply acknowledging the beauty and saying, no, thank you. We are not to take that and put it in our heart as something that we have to possess. Be captivated with her eyes for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread and the adulteress preys upon your very life if you read the commentaries verse 26 is actually very odd i might add there's a whole lot of discussion about how to translate these particular words what they mean so i won't go to, through all the different possibilities i happen to like this idea the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. What do you think that means? You're just an object. You're just something of some level of value. To the prostitute, you are a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever it is. You are just some level of value. You're not a human being of infinite worth made in the image of God. You're not that at all. You're just something of some finite dollar value. And that's all you are. So you think, you think that this immoral woman is going to love you forever. Ha, ha, ha. I think I've told you before. I remember going to a... Um, security briefing one time and there was this guy that came and did them that was hilarious and uh, he said guys look at yourself in the mirror okay if you're on a foreign trip and some beautiful woman comes up to you she's after something because your looks aren't that good <laughs> they're just not but the flattering tongue the eyes, the beauty, come on, is very enticing. Can a man scoop fire in his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife, 
No one who touches her will go unpunished. Okay? Go get the charcoal and build you a fire to cook something. You may be like me and have given up on the charcoal and just go straight to the gas, but let's keep the analogy going. You get the little charcoal briquettes and you pile them up. You ever picked up a red-hot charcoal briquette with your finger? I have. You have to do it very... No, it doesn't help. You're going to get burned. Okay? Let's look at the picture. I mean, it's a silly picture. That's the point of it. You have this pile of charcoal burning. And you decide, I want to take it over there. So you get a big scoop of it in your arms. You pull it to hold it tight so you don't lose them. And then you walk over here to put them some... What is the end result of that activity going to be? You're going to get burned. It is a law of nature. You're going to get burned. So is the man who follows after the adulterous woman. He who touches her, no one who touches her will go unpunished. Now, let's stop right there for a moment. We are all, all old enough. We know people who have committed adultery. We do, okay? We know people who have done it, we know people who have gotten away with it. We live in an age, we live in an age where it's just considered a fact of life. These things happen. It's no big deal. God forgives them. They get on with their life. Nothing happens. Let me tell you, that's not true. The Word of God says... No one who does this will go unpunished. We need to remember what marriage really is. Marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. It's that. But it is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And when we take that picture and we throw it in the mud and we trample on it, there are going to be consequences. Because while we may clamor out of the mud, take a shower and say, ah, I'm okay, we have taken the image that God has given us and left it lying in the mud. There are consequences. Writers will tell you, will discuss the fact that the Bible takes adultery very seriously. If you go back to the good Old Testament law, the punishment for adultery was stoning. You stone the guy, you stone the gal. That's why it's kind of interesting when they drug the adulterous woman to Jesus. You know it was a setup. Why was it a setup? Because where was the guy? There was no guy. The law says you got to stone them both. It was a setup from day one. 
The Bible takes adultery very seriously, even more serious than, say, good old-fashioned fornication, which is sex outside of marriage. You know, the penalty of that was you were supposed to get married. Hmm. (laughs) Or pay the bride price. But adultery was not that way. Because adultery was taking that covenant relationship and throwing it in the mud. That's why when God, speaking through the prophets in the Old Testament, wanted to really show the nation of Israel what they were doing, he says, you've gone chasing after prostitutes. You have taken that covenant relationship that I have have with you and you've thrown it in the mud. It is very serious. So even though the laws of the state of Texas, the laws of the United States, no longer punish adultery, we don't. Even though the laws don't do it, don't think that it doesn't matter. Don't think that it does not affect the relationship that you have with your spouse, the relationship you have with the person with whom you are conducting adultery or the relationships you have with anyone after that. Don't think, don't think that it doesn't matter because it does. Please. Her question is, we have so much discussion about same-sex marriage, and what does that do to the picture of Christ and his church? It totally destroys it. Because the picture of Christ and his church is based on the differences between Christ, the groom, and the church, the bride, submitting to Christ, the groom. They're two different things. The same-sex marriage says, here are two things that are the same, and we're going to... No, it's not a picture anymore of the relationship with Christ and his church. Unless, unless you believe that Christ was just a human being and he's the same as we are, so it's all the same anyway. It has nothing to do with the picture. It is a corruption of the picture. It is taking the word marriage and applying it to something that is totally invalid so men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving okay but yet if he is caught he must pay sevenfold though it cost him all the wealth of his house let's just look at that okay Somebody is starving, he breaks into his neighbor's house, and he takes food. He's guilty. He's caught. He is guilty. He should be punished. But you don't hate him for it. You understand why he did what he did. There was a reason. He was starving. But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. 
For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great it is. Once again, the seriousness of committing adultery. It's different than other sins. As he says, if you steal something because you're starving, you're guilty. You have to deal with the guilt. But at least people understand it. There is a remedy for it. Repaying the money. But if somebody has committed adultery, is the husband going to say, give me a hundred bucks and it's all over? Well, then he has reduced his wife to the level of a prostitute. And that's a whole different story. Chapter 7. Once again, we start with the same format. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your kinsman. Do you get the picture that the whole book of Proverbs views wisdom as something of great value? It isn't something that you look at when you have nothing better to do. It's not something that you read when you're bored. To the writer and reader of the book of Proverbs, wisdom is of infinite value. Look at all these active words. Keep it, store it, guard, bind, write. This implies action on your part. This implies that you are doing something to obtain and to keep wisdom. <coughs> we won't have a show of hands on this one. You could argue, you know, we go to 16 years of school so we can get a job. And then we study wisdom in our spare time. And I don't know about you, I don't have any spare time. <laughs> but that's the mentality that we have. Whole different discussion. They will keep you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. Same picture we just saw. Smooth talk, seductive words. At the window of my house, I looked through the lattice. I saw among the simple... Remember who the simple are. In the book of Proverbs, we have those who are pursuing the path of wisdom. We have those who are fools because they have rejected wisdom. The simple are the naive. In fact, some of your translations may say naive. They're the ones that just don't know yet. The perfect image of a simpleton is a child, a child who has not been instructed. Unfortunately, we have uh, adults who are simple and naive. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who lacked judgment. That's the definition of the simple. He was going down the street near her corner. Her corner? 
the wayward wife, the adulterous woman, walking along in the direction of her house. See the picture right there? The idea is that he is going with intent. He doesn't just happen to be there. He is going with intent. He is heading in a particular direction. He is running to do evil. Well, wait a minute. He's not running. He's moving as fast as he can with propriety. Okay? His desire, his intent, is in that direction. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. You see the picture again? Darkness. No lamp. Darkness. It's that picture. I might add, I might add, just as a fact of life, generally, for most people, the evening is a time of greater temptation. Why is that? Well, we've worked through the day, we're tired, and we are more open to giving way to things that we might not do at 8 o'clock in the morning. In general, in general, that's true. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in, then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. Somebody wanted to define what crafty intent looks like? She's up to something. Now, we're told that she is the adulteress. We're told that she is the wayward wife. But she is dressed as a prostitute. She's up to something. The young man in this particular picture is the simple one. The wayward wife in this picture is not simple. She's the fool, and she's trying to entice the simple in her direction. And let me say it once again, just so we're all perfectly clear. This is not an insult to women in any form or fashion. You could have just as easily have written this about the simple young lady and the crafty man. In fact, it might make more sense that direction. It works both ways. She took hold of him. Oh, we skipped a part. With crafty intent, she is loud and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. What is she lurking for? Come on. To find a simple one. Do you remember the picture that we saw in chapters 1 and 2 of wisdom standing on the street corner yelling, come to me and I will teach you wisdom. What we have here is the counter to that, the anti-wisdom the fool who is lurking about, looking for the simple to lead them astray. Now, we could have a long discussion. She is loud and defiant. She's, well, she's haughty. 
Her feet never stay at home. Somebody want to take a stab at what that means? Hmm? Pardon? Somebody said she's always at Walmart. No. She is not content. She is not content with her home life. There is nothing that says a woman has to stay at home all the time. That is not what this verse is saying. In fact, when we get to Proverbs 31, if we ever get to Proverbs 31, you'll see that the godly, virtuous woman is out doing things. But what we see here is a total lack of contentment with where God has placed her. God gave her a home, and she is not content with that. It isn't saying that if, she leave, if you leave your home, you're a wayward wife. That's not what that's saying. The question is, what is the source of your contentment? Are you content with what God has given, or are you out lurking? <sighs> she took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, I have fellowship offerings at home. Drink. <clears throat> Today I fulfilled my vows, so I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I hate to say it, but that's pretty uh, appealing to a guy. I came looking for you. Isn't that sweet? I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, alloy, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. Love, love, love. All you need is obedience to God. This is appealing. Let me repeat once again. Lest we ever forget, if sin really appeared as it ought to appear, we'd run away from it. But sin is exceptionally appealing. The serpent in the garden didn't come to Eve and say, eat this fruit, and after you do, you're going to be kicked out of the garden, and you're going to spend your life in misery. He said, no, you'll be as God, knowing right from wrong. Come on. The wayward wife says to the simpleton, Come on, let's have a jolly old time. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. We've got lots of time. It is kind of interesting. She just says, I'm a married woman, but he's gone. Let's enjoy the party. With persuasive words, she led him astray. And once again, remember, the author is looking out the lattice and he's seeing this going on. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. How's that for an image? 
Go read a nice book about the slaughterhouse business. Go read The Jungle. Once again, wisdom wants us to see foolishness as it really is. We want to see and smell the perfumed bed, the seductive words. We want to see that. God wants us to see you are being led astray like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my son, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. Not a very persuasive picture anymore. Her nice sweet words fall apart when you realize the end end result of following after her. And I will say it one more time. It can be the man leading the woman astray. It works either way. And to make it even more apparent to us, what we are dealing with here is those who are so in love with foolishness that they take the simple and they drive them and run them astray. It can be through sex. It can be through greed. It can be through violence. It can be through you name it. We as believers, have an obligation to instruct the simple. We do. To tell them, but more than that, to show them the wisdom of God. To demonstrate what the path of wisdom looks like. But, remember, it's a fight. There is someone on the other side. And that's what all of this discussion is leading us to remember. There are those actively working to draw people into the path of foolishness. It is up to us as believers who have the wisdom to instruct them on the ultimate result of going down that path. How many TV shows? How many movies? How many books? How many conversations lead us to believe that it just isn't that big a deal? It doesn't matter which path you go down. What we need to do is to continue to read All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. That's the result. No one wants to be the ox going to the slaughter. But the simple young man does want to be the one enticed by the beautiful woman. But the end result is the grave. And that's what wisdom teaches us. 
That's what faith teaches us. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for those who come to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. In other words, it's always better to do things God's way. But it takes wisdom and it takes faith. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would protect us, that you would protect our families from those who are actively working to lead us astray. And Lord, if we are involved in leading others astray, I pray, Lord, that you would make us aware of that so that we could repent and follow after you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.